let's start this sermon with a story. On my 10th birthday, I graduated from a little kid bike up to a brand new 10 speed, a real deal adult bike. It had twirly handlebars, no banana seat, and handlebar brakes. And my dad bought it a little bit big for me so that my feet couldn't quite touch the ground when I was sitting on the seat. So I had to kind of like stand up on my very tiptoes when I was stopped. I felt like a full-fledged grown-up. The bike went wicked fast and I loved changing up to higher gears and speeding along our neighborhood streets with the wind in my hair. It was the 80s, don't judge me, we didn't have helmets. And I couldn't get enough of exploring the city with my new wheels. One day after dinner, in an attempt to skip the job of doing the dishes, I left right after dinner to go ride my bike through the neighborhood. And one of my favorite places to go was the trailer park because it led out to a quiet paved street at the edge of town where I could do my best biking. The one trick with the trailer park was that it had speed bumps and I was still getting the knack of working those handbrakes. And remember, the bike was a little bit big for me. I made it through most of the trailer park without any trouble, but then something took my attention away from the road ahead of me. And when I turned back to look where I was going, there was a speed bump right in front of me and I panicked. In my inexperience, I pulled the front brake and my front tire stopped short while the back of my bike kept going and flipped over top of the front, propelling me onto the pavement where I skidded to a full stop with the help of my face. Thanks to the kindness of a woman who viewed my accident from her front window, I was delivered safely back home. And I remember my mom, who I think was six or seven months pregnant at the time, trying to get up from the picnic table as quickly as she could to come and take a look at me. And I sported a pretty brutal face for a while. I had deep wounds and scabs everywhere. I'd lost a tooth and I still have a scar from where I received a couple of stitches. I feel a little like the passage we're reading from today is going from the freedom of sailing along the pristine pavement with the wind in my hair only to hit a speed bump and come full stop with my face. And maybe I'm not the only one. I'm going to read the passage right from the top. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, I can handle that. I can take that. Let's keep going. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Can you hear my tires screeching? Can you see the face plant? Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with God. I was a little crabby when I read this passage this week. This is a personally complicated passage for me. I've struggled to understand passages like this my whole life because they have been used by leaders in churches to keep me and other women in our place and to make us feel like there is something fundamentally inferior about us because we are women. And a few times I have been left needing a few stitches and a new tooth. But in addition to that, I'm divorced. So after all of these amazing verses about being chosen and belonging, reading these words about marriage feels a little bit like hitting the front brake on a bike when I was feeling the wind in my hair just a moment before. But because I am the preacher, I don't have that luxury. Plus, I think I've actually told you guys that when feelings like this arise for us, it's an invitation to wrestle right? An invitation to discover how God might be enlarging our understanding of the scriptures. And it's not like I haven't read these verses before and even made sense of them before, making peace with what Paul is saying. But for some reason, the invitation to engage just opened up before me again this week. And so I invite you to come along on the ride with me. Maybe you're a fan of Seinfeld like I am. And if you are, you'll know that the nucleus of the show is the relationship between four friends, Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer. The show also includes relationships on the outside of this nucleus, but those relationships never really pierce the walls that protect the friendship of the four. Until the episode when Elaine starts to become friends with George's fiance, Susan, after Jerry suggests she asks Susan to join her for an outing. And this is George's reaction. 
You have no idea of the magnitude of this thing. If she is allowed to infiltrate this world, then George Costanza, as you know him, ceases to exist. You see, right now, I have relationship George, but there is also independent George. That's the George you know, the George you grew up with. Movie George, coffee shop George, liar George, bawdy George. I, I love that George. Me too. And he's dying, Jerry. If relationship George walks through this door, he will kill independent George. A George divided against itself cannot stand. In the early church, worlds were also colliding. And this is part of what gave rise to Paul writing this passage. The churches that Paul was addressing would have been made up of the societal structures called households. Now, households were not just family units, but they were almost like economic units. They included wives and children, but also freed people and slaves who all worked together to run a small economy of the household under the authority of the household head, generally a man, and usually the one who was also the husband, the father, and the master. And whatever the head of the household decided in all kinds of matters affected everyone because they worked as a unit. And so when a household head became a part of the Christian community, it wasn't just him who came a part of the community. His whole household came along with him. The household was where faith was exercised. It wasn't just an individual pursuit. There was no division between work, family, and church life. All of these worlds came together in the church community. And so you can imagine that worlds would have collided as they learned about and experienced their new identity as those chosen and beloved by God with full access to all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, while also bringing into that community, into that space, the roles of their household, the role of a wife, of a husband, of a slave. Roles which often did not reflect the freedom and identity that they experienced in the church. Worlds were colliding. And yet, Paul doesn't seem to be bothered by this. In fact, he sees these societal relationships as the places where spiritual formation happens for those who are a part of the Christian community. It is in the overlaps, in the collision of worlds, that Paul sees prime opportunity for salvation to become not only a spiritual reality, but also to take hold in the everyday domestic lives of the community. Again, we are reminded that for Paul, salvation is not conceived as a spiritual reality that pays dividends when we die. It is a reality for life now. In fact, as the worlds collide, as the spiritual reality of the community starts to infiltrate the structures of the household, this overlap becomes the very place of transformation, a place where salvation is worked out. And it's the same for us today. 
It is still in the domestic sphere, in our work and family lives, that our salvation is being worked out. It is as our spiritual reality, the reality of our chosenness, our belonging, our freedom, collides with the world in which we feel the constriction or limitations of certain roles and relationships that our spiritual reality starts to take root in and transform us in the constraints of our actual lives. The amazing spiritual reality that Paul talks about in chapter one has to be worked out in our daily lives with specific people, with specific needs and habits. It has to be worked out with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our coworkers. Because if we cannot learn to love and live with these neighbors, we do not love our neighbor. And what Paul reveals through these verses is that we cannot parcel out parts of our lives as spiritual and others is not. Our whole lives are a part of our spiritual formation, our becoming, the working out of our salvation. Now, our households don't look at all like they did in Paul's day, but I think we can still identify structures and relationships where we experience the limitations that feel frustrating or can bring out the worst in us, where it feels like this relationship or this role keeps us from being the kind of people that we want to be. So I just want you to take a minute to think about the everyday relationships in your life. Think about what makes up your household, not just the people who you live with, but also the people who depend on you or on whom you depend, whether relationally or even economically. Now, when I think about this, I think primarily about my children, but I also think about my coworkers and I think about my ex-husband and his wife with whom I share parenting duties. I think about my parents who are far away, but for whom I share responsibility and who I love and miss. And I think about friends who depend on me and who I depend on for all sorts of support and help. These are not only the primary relationships in my life, they are also the relationships in which a lot of my spiritual formation is happening and has happened because my worlds collide in these spaces all the time inviting me to see the ways in which I need to open up new areas of my life to God's grace. I can be a class act for all y'all on a Sunday morning, but when I get home at the end of a day and the kids have not emptied the dishwasher, even though I have asked them so many times, I don't really feel like I have been chosen in the heavenly realms before the beginning of time. And I don't really care that Christ is summing up all things in him. I just want my darn kids to empty the dishwasher. But I also feel like it's in this uh, friction, in this tension, in these relationships where God has given me grace and changed me the most. I am a different person because the collision of these worlds has increased my capacity to receive and give grace and to let all the parts of myself be bathed in grace while I give it to others as well. So where are you feeling your worlds collide? 
Is there a relationship in which you feel like your spiritual identity just can't mesh with what's required of you? Maybe it's your marriage or relationship with your children or in relationships at work or with a friend. Maybe you cannot see how Christ could break down the walls of hostility and allow you to live in healthy relationship with those in your household. I encourage you to just lean into that tension, to let the collision happen, because it's not just your formation that is happening. Sometimes this is actually the way that systems themselves are changed. So have you seen this recent trend in cakes where people have started to share on social media cakes that look like anything but cakes? I came across a vlog where someone cuts into a household item and you guess as the knife is going in, whether it's the item it looks like or whether what's inside is cake. Check this out. I'm not sure I would be very interested in eating a cake that looks like a steak for my birthday, but what makes this trend fascinating is that the cakes look so much like something else. It just trips you up. Until you cut into them, they look exactly like a shoe, a soup can, a steak, or a teapot. And that's kind of like what's going on in this passage. On the surface, it looks like you're getting one thing. Patriarchal structures are affirmed and propped up by Paul. And it kind of makes me want to take a pass. It doesn't look very palatable. It looks a little like raw steak. But if I know that what's really going on inside is something else, I might want to take a closer look. And this passage deserves a closer look because what it serves up is not what we think at first. Paul is taking a structure, a container, and filling it with something completely unexpected. Paul is writing to those who are swimming in the reality of a patriarchal society. I'm not sure that it would have even occurred to Paul or to anyone else that there was something to dismantle. It just was. That was the culture of the day. So the man of the house was the one who headed the house, who made the decisions, and who held the power. And in this passage, we see three pairs of relationships that reflect that shape of the household. The husband and the wife, the father and the child, and the master and the slave. And what we can think when we make our first initial reading is that Paul is imitating or echoing the patriarchal structure of the time. Because on one side, we have the beholden person, the more vulnerable person, 
And on the other side, we have the person with the power, the head of the household. We have the structures represented. We see the stake. But as we read a little more carefully, we see that Paul is filling up those relational structures with something his readers would never have expected. First off, the discussion of household codes happened a lot in philosophy in Paul's day, but these discussions rarely, if ever, address the vulnerable person in the household pairing. They were objects to be used for the good of the head of the household, not people to be addressed and respected. But Paul here addresses the women, he addresses the slaves, and he addresses the children. So you can imagine the whole household gathered together in their church community, and this letter is being read aloud. And it not only speaks to those who have power, but it speaks to each person in the community. Their ears would have perked up as they were recognized by Paul. Paul gives them the dignity of a place in the household of God by talking to them directly and giving them power and direction over their own lives. He says this to them, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. And slaves, serve your masters as you would serve Christ. The first part is stake. Submit, obey, serve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the second part, the second part we do not expect. The second part is like cake. Submit, but as to the Lord, because you belong to the Lord as you would serve Christ, that's unexpected. And what Paul does by, by redefining the vulnerable person's submission in their relationship to Christ, instead of locating it in the existing structures of authority, is to give power back to that vulnerable person. They are not submitting to some arbitrary authority, but to Christ who has chosen them, who loves them, who calls them brother and sister, who has laid his very life down for them. And so the vulnerable person claims their identity and then chooses submission. It is not chosen for them. They don't submit to the authority of the structures. They submit to Christ. And then Paul totally upends what people would have been used to hearing about how the person with power, the husband, the master, the father, should use it. He says, love your wife, don't provoke your children, treat your slaves as equals. This was a radical shift. Listen especially to the words of how a husband should treat his wife. He says, care for her as you would care for your own body. Tend to her, pay attention to her good, lay down your interests for the sake of hers as Christ did for the church. This was just not how wives were viewed in those times. And here's an example of what people thought about wives in the words of Demosthenes. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives 
bear us legitimate children. The idea of loving a wife and caring for her, of having a mutual relationship with her, was not a thing in Paul's day. And Paul is doing something radical as he fills up these patriarchal structures with love, with mutual submission, with sacrifice. And the amazing thing is, is that as these structures are filled up with these new habits, this begins to change the structures themselves. Over time in the Christian community, marriage is drained of its patriarchal filling. We see the parent-child relationship transformed in the church, and Christians eventually are on the front lines of the fight against slavery. The very structures themselves are transformed or completely collapse as those who are filled by the Spirit do what they are called to do. And God makes all things new. And so, when Christian communities try to use these passages to promote male headship as a way to exercise control in a home setting over their wives and children, or to support a toxic cultural idea of what masculinity looks like and then label it biblical, I want to say that not only is that anti-Paul and anti-scriptural, it is not the way of Jesus. It is not the way of love. Anytime somebody emphasizes power as control over another person or control over a community, that's worshiping a structure and it needs to be called out and named for what it is. Idolatry. You see, Paul instead is calling marriages to be relationships of intimacy, of mutuality, of self-giving love and understanding. And that is an incredibly compelling and winsome view of marriage. And he does this by putting both parties on a level playing field through the call to submit to one another. By doing so, he raises the vulnerable person up while bringing the powerful person down so that they can look one another in the eye and be in mutual relationship. Now again, we don't occupy the same cultural structures that the church did in Paul's day. But I think that the heart of Paul's message to the Ephesians is still relevant for us. Our use of power has the capacity to change the world. Our use of power has the potential either to plant within the structures the seeds of the kingdom or the seeds of the culture with, which yield no fruit. And how we learn to lay down our lives for the people closest to us has political and social implications. So take a close look at the power dynamics in your life. Where do you hold power and privilege? It might be in your marriage as a husband or even now as a wife, but it also might be in your workplace or in how and where you spend your money or with your kids. It might be with a vulnerable aging parent or in a relationship where someone looks to you for leadership, for advice, for mentoring. Figure out ways to pour your power out in these relationships, 
to use it for the good of the person you have power over. Don't hold on to it because power goes bad when we hold on to it. But when we use it for the sake of others, it works to transform the world. Or maybe you're in a position where you feel like power has been taken away from you, where you don't have control or agency. Experiment with how it might transform that relationship to submit to the circumstances you find yourself in. Not because you are less than, and not because that person has more power than you, but because Jesus is present even there in that situation, working out his salvation. But a side note to that, if major boundaries are being broken in a relationship, if you are being abused or if someone else is, you can quit, you can leave, you can tell, and you can fight back. Here's one last lesson that I learned from this passage this week. Paul drains these relationships of their power dynamics. And he is doing this by calling for everyone to submit to one another out of reverence for not the structures and not to earthly authority, but for Christ. And marriage gets the bulk of his attention in the passage. In the list of the relationships that he talks about, it's clear that there is something very special about the marriage relationship. And this is the clue that Paul gives us. He uses the word mystery. And this is what the passage says. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. You know those word finds where you have a grid of letters and you're supposed to find the words hidden in them? Mystery is kind of like that word in the book of Ephesians. It jumps out at us as we read the book and we find it in two other places. We find it in Ephesians 1 where it says this, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And we find it again in Ephesians 3. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So, that's a lot. Let me sum it up. The mystery is that under Christ, all things are being brought together, being summed up, being unified. The mystery is that God is recreating, renewing, and healing the world through the work of Christ on the cross. That's Ephesians 1. Ephesians 3 says that the mystery is that in Christ, Jew and Gentile belong. That Christ has broken down the walls of hostility that kept these two nations from being a new community. 
And finally, in Ephesians 5, the mystery is that one man and one woman become one in marriage. So what do these three things have to do with one another? Well, I don't think Paul is talking about three different mysteries. He is referring to the same thing in all three passages. And he's using the Ephesians tunnel again, starting with that amazing broad spiritual reality that encompasses all of creation and then narrowing it down little by little as the rubber hits the road. And it means that in Christ, all people find their true identity first and foremost as one of God's chosen people. But it's not just us who were chosen or people like us who were chosen, but everyone has now been given access. Ephesians says those who were far off and those who are near. And the sign of this is that in Christ, a new community is being formed with people of all different kinds, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. And so Paul says, any hostility that once existed between these groups is removed in Christ. We all belong to one another. And the sign of this is living unified in our diversity. Jew and Gentile are being brought together in unity under Christ as they become brothers and sisters adopted children of God because of Christ. We are no longer pitted against one another. We belong to one another. And this is a sign of what God has done in Christ. He's broken down the walls that divide us and has brought healing and restoration to relationships between humans. And it is the same thing with marriage. Two people belong to one another. Instead of two people groups coming together to become a third thing, Jews and Gentiles become the church, two people become a third thing. A man and a woman become a married couple. They become one. And this is a beautiful sign of what Christ does for the church and what God is up to in all of creation. This oneness does not obliterate our two-ness. It does not obliterate who we are as individuals. Because if it did do that, then there would be no need for submission. There'd be no need for reconciliation. There would be no need for grace because I would just be swallowed up in the personalities, desires, and dreams of another person. There would be no mutuality. The difference in the unity is what makes the church beautiful and it's also what makes marriage beautiful. So marriage is a metaphor, but also a revealing of the reality that love and care can flourish when there is mutual submission and mutual trust. It shows the new community, the new family that can form when two people become one in Christ. Marriage becomes a real-time example of how Christ is forming a new humanity through reordered relationships and how Christ is breaking down hostilities between people who would be divided by nationality, culture, beliefs, or gender. And this kind of oneness happens through submission. The reality that holds up this view of marriage 
is actually not just for married people. It's for all of us. Because submitting to one another in reverence to Christ is the door to participation in the reality that God is summing up all things under Christ. It's in laying aside our own interests for the sake of something larger than ourselves that we become a part of the healing of the whole world. As we submit to Christ, we are gathered up in him. We assent to his reality and participate in the new humanity that God is creating. And that is submission. It is beautiful. It is the tool by which God invites us to participate in the new humanity and to exercise our identity and to invite others in to join us. Like the ride on my 10-speed all those years ago, this passage has left me with a few scars. But I'm glad I got to take another ride because I think I'm ready to gather up speed again and feel the wind in my hair wear a helmet this time. How about you? If so, let your worlds collide. Learn how to pour your power out and participate in the mystery that God is making the whole world new as we submit to Christ. Submission destabilizes power structures but it also humanizes our enemies. And see, if you're reading the Bible, this whole idea of submission is, is not a new thing. It's not an original idea by Paul. It's actually something that Jesus talked about. And, and Jesus used a different word than Paul. He often called it serving. And the thing is that Jesus said that his followers would be people who, who weren't people who were out for it for, for themselves. They weren't people who were self-centered and, and, and wanting everyone to come and like serve them and bow down to them. That instead, he said that his followers needed to be servants. They needed to be people who submitted to others and to one another and, and, and offered themselves. They didn't expect to be elevated to places of power, but instead were to be people who were going around thinking about others more than they thought about themselves. And if you read the Gospels in the New Testament, what's actually crazy is, is that Jesus, who is God himself, came to earth not to be worshipped or to have us bow down to him or like do whatever it is he asked. He actually says that he came to earth to serve, which is crazy that the God of the universe came down to earth not to be served, which he should be. Our, our natural response to God should be to serve him, but that's not why he came. He came to serve others. He came to serve us. And so if we want to follow Jesus, we need to follow Jesus and, and one of the ways we do this is by serving like he served us and, and submitting to others who we don't have to submit to. A uh, pastor and author um, called Andy, Andy Stanley uh, says this about this passage. And I remember my parents watching a sermon on this passage when I was like, I don't know, six or eight. And, and this actually stuck with me that, that in this passage, what Paul is talking about is he's talking about a submission competition. Um, meaning that as Christians, we are fighting to submit with one another, that we're not fighting to be better, that we're actually fighting to like, who can serve each other most. 
And the thing is, is that this is hard. Like, it's not easy to, to be in a submission competition where you're fighting to submit to one another more and serve one another better. Um, I know for me and, and, and in my relationship with my fiance, Emily, that I am a incredibly selfish, self-centered person. I just am. I want things to happen that I want to happen when I want them to happen. And I don't really want to do things that I don't want to do. And the thing about a relationship is that it can't really work like that. And so at the beginning of our relationship, it was actually really unhealthy, and I was really unhealthy. Um, I was still in this mindset that a relationship should serve me. Like, it should meet the things that I want in the relationship. And so if Emily did things or wanted to do things that didn't fit the, like, box that I thought a perfect relationship was, then, then I was unhappy and I was going to let it be known. And, and, and to be honest, it was incredibly unhealthy. And I know some of you married people are laughing at me right now, being like, I can't believe this guy. What an idiot. Um, but, but it was how I felt and acted at the time. And over the years, I've recognized that a relationship that's actually healthy and Christ-centered isn't a relationship that is about how others can serve me and meet the things that I think they should be meeting, but it's about how I can actually serve that person. And so um, I began to do things. I love movies. I love sitting on the couch, not doing anything, just relaxing. Emily loves going out and like having fun and going on adventures and actually like living your life. And, and, and so oftentimes we clash heads with this, where I just want to sit on the couch and watch a movie, and she just wants to go out and actually like do something with her life. And so I began to be convicted, realizing that Jesus is calling me to actually serve her in this way, to submit to her in this way. That just like how Jesus sacrificed what he wanted to do, which is probably like stay in heaven and not die, you know, that would be good. Um, that, that he actually came and served uh, served me and served us. And in the same way, I'm supposed to serve Emily. So I began to start trying to sacrifice and dying to myself. I know, it's so hard, right? Oh, no, you're going to go outside on a walk. What a, what a sacrificial act. But actually, that small act began to change the way I saw our relationship. And in the same way, Emily did the same for me. She would sit down and watch a movie with me. She does not care to watch a movie, but, but she will. And even this past weekend, she did something for my birthday that, that she didn't want to do, but I wanted her to do, and she did it um, to submit and serve me. And see, in this relationship, it's actually become really healthy and a lot better than it was at the beginning, where we began to have our own submission competition, where we would fight to see who can submit to one another more. And the thing is that we fail. Like, come on. I am still a very selfish, self-centered person, and God is working on me to not be that way. Um, but it's actually been really fruitful and actually really beneficial to learn to die to myself, to serve her like Jesus served me, and to submit to her instead of just thinking it's all about me and, and people serving me and things going my way. And so for this week, I want to call you to have your own submission competition. Um, I want you to pick one person in your life that you need to start submitting and serving. And the thing is, it's going to be really easy for you to pick somebody who would be easy to serve. Someone who you usually agree with on most things, and so you're not really having to submit or serve them. It's more just like living life as normal. And I want to challenge you to not do that. I actually want you to sit down and think about someone who would be hard to serve. So here's a couple ideas of people that you can maybe submit to and serve this week. Um, maybe if you are a kid or a student in a household, you can learn to submit to your parents or your authorities of your household. Whoever is in charge, 
you could learn that when they ask you to do the dishes that you actually, instead of like waiting 10, 15 minutes and then having to be told again, you actually go and do the dishes. I know it's a crazy idea, right? Um, or maybe when they tell you to get off the video games, you get off the video games. Or maybe, and this is crazy, maybe you don't even do it before they ask. Maybe you realize, hey, uh, this house needs a vacuum and a little, a little clean here and there, and I'm actually going to do that without being prompted. Um, I actually want to challenge you to serve your parents or your guardians in this way to actually submit to them and serve them by going above and beyond in what you can do around the house or, or just obeying what they say. And then maybe for some of us, it's submitting to a boss or a coworker. If there's someone at work who drives you nuts, who you just can't stand, um, and who often you're rubbing up against with, with opinions and, and ways to do things. And I actually want to challenge you to just, for this week, just serve them, submit to them, love them, care about them. If they tell you to do something, you do it. If you know that you would do something that would make them happy, even though it's stupid that you do it, um, serve them in that way. Or maybe it is your spouse or partner. Um, maybe you just need, maybe you're like me, you know, you're just a little bit selfish and you kind of want things done your way because they're the right way. Who would want to go outside where it's dangerous and there's wind and it's cold or it's too hot and there's animals that they could come and get you? Who would want to go out there? What, what madman would want such a thing? And maybe you submit um, your reasoning and logic and, and, and the right way to actually do things their way or actually serve them in this way. Uh, and maybe you go above and beyond where instead of them asking you to do something, you're like, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's watch a movie. Um, let, let's go to the park. Let's go camping. Let's do something. Or, or, or maybe you see that, that, that things are crazy in the house or maybe they're super busy and slammed. Maybe they're busy with the kids. Maybe they're busy with work. And so you kind of do the things that they would normally do for them and you submit and serve them in this way. Or maybe it's one of a million other people that you could serve. I don't know. But I want to challenge you this week to have your own submission competition where you are competing with yourself to serve others like Jesus has served you and, and to submit to one another. Because here's the thing, as you do this, what you're going to find is that you are releasing <laughs> your, your power and what you think should be happening. And almost like you're kind of rule, like you're giving up a little piece of your kingdom and realizing that life isn't about you, that it's actually about serving God. And then also in this, you're going to start to humanize your enemies. Um, I know that when I have served and submitted to people who I honestly just like didn't like and saw as my enemy, um, that I began to see them more as human. Um, and, and I began to, 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 to humanize them and see them as people that God created. And even in that, I just want to push a little bit more and say, maybe for some of us, it means that if we are pro-COVID rules, whatever, that we start submitting to our, our anti-COVID rules and anti-masker friends. Meaning that you don't need to put yourself at risk, but that like you start figuring out how can I serve this person even though I disagree with them politically. And vice versa, if you're someone who's like, this is all crazy nonsense and don't take the vaccine, that, that you, you submit to the people who disagree with your opinion and think that this is necessary. And it doesn't mean that you need to like do all the things you need to do, but, but in a loving way, live out your life in a way to serve them. And I think that will really start to change the way we see one another. And this can expand to all kinds of different things. Maybe you disagree with people on your social media. You start figuring out, how can I serve this one person? And, and it can roll in all kinds of different ways. But that's why I want you to pick someone that's not, like, super easy. Um, because not only will this let, give you the ability to let go of some of the power you think you have and realize that you don't have it, not only will it help you follow Jesus by serving like he served, but it will also help you see people the way that Jesus sees people, which are his kids made in his image, who are screw-ups and mess-ups, 
but who he loves and wants to serve and calls us to serve as well. So as we head into worship, um, maybe just spend the time in this song thinking about who it is that, that God is maybe calling you to submit to and serve this week. Um, I'm excited to, to, to see us as a community have our own submission competition um, and, and see the kind of impact that we'll make on our world, our city, our families, and the people that are around us. Thank you.